through 14. This is Paul speaking to the church at Rome as he continues his argument on what Christ has done uh, for us. Romans 6, 11 through 14. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. This is God's word. I'd like to talk a little bit about Christianity and particularly what I call Christianity in crisis. If you look at studies being done on Christianity, you will find several key metrics. One, participation is dropping in the church, particularly among the younger population. People are not following in the footsteps of their parents or expressing any sort of interest in coming to church. When you preview asking the questions why, an answers, answers you might find are this, that there's a great amount of hypocrisy in the church. Now to be sure, Christianity, as well as other religions, have always been co-opted by political movements for their own purposes. The same happens whether on the left or on the right. But basically, the message that's coming out is that Christianity doesn't look that different from the world in which it lives. There was a study done by David Kinneman, who is the uh, president of the Barna Group. It's like a five-year study. And it, uh, the, the results were uh, put out in a book called Unchristian. And in their research, our team, says Kinneman, discovered that 84% of young non-Christians say they know a Christian personally, yet only 15% say the lifestyles of those believers are noticeably different in a good way. We have experienced the challenges and the pressures of the culture upon us as well. The pressure to conform. And we have to sometimes scratch our heads. Maybe in our heart of hearts we ask the question, am I really living out this Christianity? Or is there a sense of defeat in my heart that I seem to be living in the same way I used to live before I was a Christian? I'm not sure. Is there something that's wrong with me? Am I doing this incorrectly? The same besetting sins come at us over and over again, condemning us. We seek to gain victory over them, yet it seems elusive. And we look at the Bible, and we look at Jesus and what he promises, and we look at our lives and we ask ourselves the question, is something wrong with me? We need to dig in to this scripture because the scripture teaches us something very powerful, that we are called to victory over sin. Indeed, that there are provisions that are given to us to live the victorious Christian life. But unlike what we may have been taught over the years, it is not an effortless victory. 
It's not a passive waiting to be released from the bondage and shackles of sin. But rather it is a battle. A battle in which we are to engage. A battle in which we find victory not through passivity. But rather through faith. And taking steps of faith. And believing in the promises of God. And so I want to dig into the scripture and examine these questions. I want to make several points. Number one, that we are called to a life of holiness and victory over sin. This is what is the normal Christian life, not the exception. Number two, we have a part to play. And what is that part? If we don't understand our part, perhaps the reason we aren't experiencing victory is because we are not playing the part that God calls us to play. And finally, number three, we have the assurance of grace that we need not live out our Christian life in fear, but rather in joy, in hope, and in the assurance of the promises and love of God that form the foundation for us to strive for holiness, not in fear, but rather in love. Well, let's dig in and let's examine these points now that you're all on the edge of your seats waiting. Number one, we are called to victory over sin. We've been going through the book of Romans, specifically Romans 5 through 8. But really from verses, from the beginning of the verse to now in in, uh, 6, in the middle of this chapter, Romans 6, Paul has been making a case for the truth and reality that Christianity is a religion of grace. Romans 3.21 sums up Paul's argument that a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, to which the law and the prophets actually testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Paul is saying it's not by our human effort that we will ever attain to a right standing with God. But rather, it's because of the right standing. They'll start to believe this. They're not going to live holy lives. In fact, the only reason they live holy lives or try to is because of fear of God. Paul responds, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means, Paul says, we died to sin, how can we live in it? In other words, Paul is saying when one comes to Christ, it's not simply an assertion, believing in Jesus Christ, but when we believe in Christ and put our trust in him, a transformation happens. Something that we still don't fully understand happens in which there's a transformation in our hearts. Paul from Romans 6, 1 to 10 has broken this down. When he says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, in other words, believed and trusted in Christ, were baptized into his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in his death, we shall surely be united with him in his resurrection. For the death he died, he died to sin, but the life he lives to God. And in Romans 6.11, which is in the beginning of this passage, is really the first commandment in the entire book of Romans. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, And alive to God in Christ Jesus. Notice these key words. So you must. 
Not you may or you should, but you must. It's a critical part of your Christian life. It's a foundation, if you will. You must consider, and the Greek word for consider could also be translated conclude or calculate. It's actually an accounting term. You must also recognize and compute and conclude that you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So Paul therefore goes on, verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Now we talked about last week that if we see that sin, uh, he says here that we've died to sin, well, we still sin, don't we? And the Bible even says we sin. So what is the Bible talking about? That we are now dead to the reign of sin. We are no longer under the power of sin. We are no longer enslaved to sin and that we have to do what sin wants us to do. In other words, we used to have a master who told us what to do and it was sin and we had no choice. Indeed, had no interest in disobeying it. But now we no longer have to live under the reign of that master. We have died to sin. But Paul goes on to make sure that we understand that sin is not dead. We've died to the reign of sin, but we must be vigilant to the influence of sin. Verse 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. The therefore is saying, because you're dead to sin, you no longer have to let it reign. Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. Now, the first thing I want you to know is that doctrine is practical. There's a group of people in the church that want to know doctrine, but they want to know it from an academic sense. In other words, there's nothing that Paul ever says that is not being given to us for the purpose of us living out the Christian life. There's another group that says, we don't care about doctrine. All we need is Jesus. Everybody has a doctrine. Doctrine is what you believe. And there are a lot of things that we believe about Jesus that just aren't true. Where do we get the right teaching about what has happened? We get it in the scriptures. And so Paul is giving us instruction about how to live. In light of the fact that sin is no longer your master, you must not let it reign in your mortal body. Now notice these key words. He doesn't say, let not sin reign in you. Because that would be impossible, wouldn't it? You have already overcome sin through Christ. You're dead to sin, you, and you're alive to God. But sin can reign in my mortal body. Notice the word mortal. See, though I have been resurrected, my body has not, has it? There will come a time when I will receive a resurrection body. But for now, I live in this mortal body. Well, what is my body? My body is my interface, if you will. It's how I relate to the world, and the world relates to me, right? It's, I'm speaking to you right now, and I'm using my voice, which comes from my body. I'm using my hands. I'm moving. My body is what I am connected to. When I die, my body will still, still be here, but I will not be here. 
my spirit will ascend to heaven to wait my resurrection body. And so I am interfaced with my body, but I am more than my body, aren't I? Our world is fascinated with our body. Our body, they, the world thinks that we're, we are simply our body, but I'm more than my body. Notice 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we long, we groan longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, meaning my body, we groan and are burdened. Because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, meaning our heavenly body, which isn't a spirit, but matter, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. See, we're waiting for a new body. Paul is not saying, and the scripture is not saying that flesh is bad, that the whole point is to escape this corporeality, but he's saying that our body is corrupted. I am responsible for the actions of my body, to be sure, aren't I? It's not a good argument, you know, if you go out and you beat someone up, well, I didn't do that, my body did it. No, but I'm more than my body. And my body is corrupted. And so we see this in the scriptures. Later in Romans 7, Paul will say, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, in my body. Or in Romans seven twenty four, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? My body is corrupted. And so Paul is saying, Let not sin reign in your mortal body. Now, there are a couple of things I want you to see from this. Number one, sin is separate from me. Notice how he speaks to it. Let not sin reign. It's separate, but it's a power. And this sin can still harass me. Indeed, it can defeat me. It can cause me to live in a way that is contrary with who I am. It influences me, but it's not me. Because I have been changed. Sin can still reign and rule. It can take my body's passions, if you will, and it can make me obey them. What is it talking about there, the body's passions? It's talking about the instincts that we have that can be corrupted. We all have a desire for food, It's an instinct that serves us well. There's nothing wrong with that. It's part of being human. But when sin captures it, the desire becomes gluttony or bulimia or anorexia and it rules over us. Our tongue, our mouth, our stomach can become weapons for righteousness or unrighteousness. The desire for drink serves us well. But when sin captures it, that desire may become alcoholism or, God forbid, caffeine addiction. I've got to have it or else. I just touched off a very sore spot. The desire for sexual satisfaction is good and is a servant of procreation and the joy of marriage. Sex is a good thing. God made it. 
the members of our body for sex. But when sin captures it, that desire can become pornography, adultery. Our sexual organs can become weapons of unrighteousness. The desire for rest and sleep serves us well. But when sin captures it and makes us obey its passions, that desire can become sloth and laziness. So the scripture is telling us that we must not let sin reign over us to make us obey the body's passions, the fallen instincts. So here are the key truths that you need to remember. Number one, you are dead to the reign of sin. Excuse me, you are dead to the reign of sin, but sin still has power. The Christian life is not a life of smooth sailing. It's a battle. There is never a time when you will reach a state of sinless perfection in which it's easy, you know, kind of like there's the effortless Buddha where you've gone to the new plane of existence because as long as you live in a mortal body, which you will until you die or until the coming of Jesus Christ, you will experience this battle. But here's the other key truth you need to remember. Sin does not have to reign. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. The Bible would not give us this command if it was not possible. Let not sin reign in your mortal body so you obey its passions. There is another way. Trivia question. Who here knows the word gossipiboma? I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. Who's going to raise their hand if you really know gossipiboma? Gossipiboma is a medical term. Specifically, when you are performing surgery and you leave something in the person's body when you close them up. Specifically, in this case, uh, gauze or something of a textile nature. When I perform surgery, do you know that there are over 250 to 300 surgical tools used when you add up all the materials in an average surgery? And it can climb up to 600 for major surgeries. And who can remember all the stuff that is being used, right? Well, when they close you up, they try to keep account of everything that they got. But the thing that often gets left when something gets left at all are the sponges that they use to soak up the blood and, and the fluids and so forth. So imagine that I was having surgery and somebody accidentally left a sponge inside of me. After a while, I would start to experience problems, right? So I go to visit the doctor. Doctor asks me, what are the symptoms? What are the problems you're having? Well, I'm not thirsty at all. I'm, feel, I'm never, never thirsty. It's fantastic, but it's a little bit weird. Second thing is I don't seem to have the need to go to the bathroom. There's like an absorbent material in me. I'm, the doctor says, hmm, that's not right. That's not right. We need to take some x-rays. We need to see what's going on. And so they take the x-rays, and lo and behold, they see we've left some sponges in the patient. So the doctor comes back, and the doctor says, we, we found the problem. The problem is in you, but the problem is not you. See, sin, we have a problem The problem is in us, but the problem is not us. 
Now the reason I'm sharing this with you is because I want you to understand in the battle of sin, it is so easy for the devil to whisper to you and to me and and to say something is wrong with you. Something is wrong with you. This Christian thing, this Christianity, it's a lie. It's a farce. You can't defeat sin, right? And so we leave off kind of waiting, hoping that some magical day is going to come along when we go to a conference or we hear something or we read a book and all of a sudden everything will be made clear and Christianity will no longer be a struggle. And so we experience the fallenness of our sin, our temper that flares up. We've tried, we've prayed, we've done, you know, read the different things, but it keeps coming up. That battle against pornography, the draw of that computer, to have that lust satiated, that battle against food, that, you name it. Your problem is in you, if you are a Christian, but your problem is not you. It's the power of sin. And I also want you to understand that there can be victory. We were made for victory. We are called to a victory over sin, but there is a part that we have to play. And that's what I want to talk about now in my second part. What is this part we have to play? Notice verse 12 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Do not present your members to sin, but present yourselves to God. The thing I want you to notice is there is something that we have to do. What we do affects the outcome of how we live. Sanctification is not a gift to be received, at least not in the way that you think. See, most of us, when we talk about the Christian life and we hear about the Christian life, the word we hear is surrender. Surrender your life. In other words, let God live his life through you. Maybe you've heard this. You know, what you have to do is you have to let go and let God live his life through you. I have to get out of the way that he will obey and live this Christian life through us. And the conclusion that we draw is that the Christian life is of passivity. In other words, he has to take the first step. We're not willing, if you will. What? Well, are you willing to be willing? The, the problem is we have to get out of the way and we're not getting out of the way and that's the problem. That is not what the Bible says. It's certainly not what Romans 6 says. Well, wait a second, Carlos. Wait a second, wait a second. What about John the Baptist who says he must become greater and we must become less? He's talking about the lordship of Jesus Christ and the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Not that John the Baptist must become less in the sense of more and more passive, but there must be greater lordship and obedience to Jesus Christ. Well, what, what about the vine and the branches, right? You know, you have that beautiful picture on the wall of the vine and the branches and the apples and, you know, it's, it's serene and it's beautiful, you know? The problem is the apple doesn't have a brain. And the apple doesn't have a will. And we do. It's an analogy. But you have to read all of John 
15, don't you? Where he goes on to say, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Obey my commands and you will abide in my love. The point I'm trying to make, my friends, is this, that we take the first step in our walk of obedience to Jesus Christ. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, says Philippians 2.12, for it is God who works in you both to will and to act according to his good purpose. This word, work out your own salvation, the word actually is accomplish, produce, bring about. Are you saying it's all on me? Absolutely not. For it is God who works in you. But you are to work. It's a partnership of working together. But God is raising sons and daughters. And what we do not teach our children to do as they're growing is to become less responsible. But to grow up, to choose, to learn to choose the right and eschew the wrong. And so what Paul is saying is that in this battle, we are participants. We have a part to play, and it's a very important part because it's the first step. Paul speaks of his own journey of sanctification. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. And the writer in Hebrews admonishes us, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And so what I want you to understand is there are two rulers. There is God and there is sin. And Satan along with sin. Now what does it mean to be a ruler? Well, whoever rules means you follow their rules. Right? The ruler is synonymous with the rules. And so if sin reigns, in fact, Paul spells it out very clearly, do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions or its rules, the rules of our flesh that want to drive us in a certain direction. If we let Satan rule, we'll follow the passions of our body the passions which are corrupted, the instincts which turn into these fallen desires. Instead, Paul says, present yourselves to God. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. So how do we make God the ruler? It's simple. We choose to follow his rules, right? Because every realm has rules. We live in the United States of America. There are rules that come along with living in this realm. And what Paul is saying is, live by God's rules. Notice how Jesus lived his life in Romans Hebrew, uh, excuse me, in Hebrews 10:5. It says, "When Christ came into the world, he said, "When Christ came into the world, he said, "I hate the double side." Curse my printer. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. And then I said, here I am. This is Jesus speaking. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will. 
O God. I have come to live out your will in my body. I've come to recognize you are the ruler by following the rules. See, what becoming a Christian has done is put a new heart in us. We live in a new realm. We can follow a new ruler and live by a different set of rules. And so what did Jesus do but come not only to die in our place and to be resurrected, but to show us the final set of rules, the final way of what it means to live by the rules of God. Indeed, he did sum them all up, didn't he? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That would be true north, if you will, of what it means to live by the rules of God. You apply that to any particular situation. And the scriptures go on in 1 John 5, 3, that this is love for God, to obey his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. I like the way Paul puts it when he talks about presenting the members of our body as instruments of righteousness. We just sang several worship songs together with a band as they played their instruments. The Bible is saying that our body, the members of our body, are instruments. And we have to play them. Now all of these band members were playing by a certain set of sheet music. It's that sheet music that determined how they would play, the song that they would sing, if you will. And Paul is saying to take the members of my body as instruments and to play off the sheet music of God's word. So think a little bit about that. What is one of the instruments that we have? It's my voice. It's what I say. I can give my voice. I can let sin reign so that I follow its passions. And you know what will come out of my voice? The music, the result? It'll be putting others down. It'll be a constant lifting myself up. There'll be gossip, gossip coming out of my mouth. There'll be slander coming out of my mouth. There'll be cursing coming out of my mouth. These are all the byproducts, if you will, of the decision to let sin be the ruler. But the sheet music of God is different. First of all, we know it says to worship God and to love Him and to love our neighbor as ourself. So automatically, if I'm following God's rule, I'll speak in a different way about people. In fact, if I look at the sheet music in God's word, in God's Bible, it tells me this in Ephesians 4.29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. See, we must do it. We must not simply pray for God to do it and wait. I'm not saying we don't pray, but we do it. And here's what's amazing. That as the music comes out, as I begin to play, that God meets me and empowers my actions to give them force. See, if my body is the orchestra, I am the conductor. And he brings the music. 
and he brings the power. That it's a partnership that I, as I choose to obey God's word, acting out by faith, walking in the spirit, my life starts to characterize a life of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control and faithfulness. It happens when we decide who we will follow. Here's a passage from um, uh, Spurgeon, a famous pastor who said it a lot better than me. He said, I hope they are Christian people. He's speaking about Christian people, he says on the street. For in some points they seem as if they were, but if if I were asked to look at their lives and give an opinion as to whom they belong, I should be compelled to say, they seem mostly to belong to themselves. To whom does their property belong? To themselves. To whom does their time belong? To themselves. To whom does their talent belong? To themselves. As far as I can see, they lay all out upon themselves and live for themselves. And what do they give to God? If they are generous, they give him the leftovers, the scraps. There are hundreds of professors who never gave God anything that cost them a self-denial. Now, it may be that people who call themselves Christians live that way, but they're really not Christians. Or it may be that possibly we are being deceived. That we are thinking that we're living for ourselves, but we are slaves to sin. We're obeying. We're we're marionettes and puppets when we don't have to be. See, the reality is as a Christian, I have been freed from sin. But as Thomas Jefferson said, the, the cost of freedom is vigilance. So the point I'm trying to make is that victory starts with me. Choosing to obey God's word. You know what the New Testament is? Aside from teaching and preaching the gospel, it's about application. It's about different scenarios and how we are to live in them. So if you want to look and learn about how we are to live in a sex-saturated society, go to 1 Corinthians. If we want to learn to what it means and how we are to relate to people, go to Philippians. My job is to help teach you God's word. But your job is to, help, is to learn it. All too often my problem is not this, that I don't know God's word. It's that, that I don't know enough of God's word, that I'm not willing to obey the little bit of God's word that I know. And so what I am teaching you and telling you is this, that you can experience victory over sin today as you present your members to God by obeying his word in your particular situation. Well, that'll never work. Yes, it will. See, the truth of the matter is most people find Christianity difficult and so they leave it untried, but instead they say it's impossible. You will not experience and know the power of God until you get in step with God and that starts with you. Letting not sin reign over my mortal body and my instruments. The the interface I have with the world, but rather choosing to live by God's word in each and every instance. 
And something happens. The scriptures tell us in 1 John that if anyone obeys God, God's love is truly made complete in him. I want to experience all the promises and the blessings of the Christian life. You won't start to experience them until you walk in obedience. Because it's then that you'll see him. It's then that you'll see the truth. Well, this brings me to my final point. What what is our assurance? See, the reason all too often why we don't do this is because we fall prey to the voice of Satan. Satan no longer possesses us, but he certainly can influence us. And he comes to us in the way that he came to Adam and Eve and he said, can you really trust God? That if you walk by his ways, that if you resist the passions of your body and instead you choose to walk in obedience to God, that he's going to be there for you? Oh no. He's going to lead you off a cliff. He's going to lead you to destruction. But you see, Paul finishes this admonition with verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Can we really trust God? The answer is yes. Because we're under the grace of God. So as we look and ask the question, much like a child, am I going to jump off that diving board? Are you going to catch me? We see Jesus, and the answer is yes. Because we are under his grace, we're saved from the wrath of God. God's wrath is entirely removed from us so that every single action that God has toward us is a saving action, is a building up action, is a blessing action. We can trust that God has the good for us and not the bad. He demonstrated it on the cross. We can trust God being under grace because that guarantees that sin will not be master over us. We don't have to live by guilt anymore. I hope you are experiencing and seeing a bit of a freedom in this. Your problem is in you, but your problem isn't you. You're going to sin. But that's not you. And so what you do is acknowledge the fact and the truth of the matter that I have fallen prey to the lies of the devil. But that's not who I am. And I can come to you, Jesus Christ. I can confess my sins. And I can experience the forgiveness of the cross. And I can begin again. I don't have to be beset and live in guilt. If you're living under guilt, you are living, um, you are being deceived by Satan. Reason number three. Because I'm under grace, God has given me a new desire in my heart. A new picture of what life could be. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you. Not necessarily with, he's not going to bless your lifestyle all the time. He's going to bless your life. To give you hope and a future. I can live because I live under the dominion of grace. I no longer have to pay attention to Satan's false promises. God has a better plan for my life. My heavenly father has given me a bigger vision to walk in the steps as Jesus did. So how do I sum all of these things up? I guess I'd simply say it the way Paul did. 
so you also must consider yourselves dead to the rule of sin and alive to God. So do not let sin reign. Be the ruler of your mortal body by obeying its rules. But rather, when you make an active decision by what you know of God's will, to live in accordance with God's will and make sure that it lines up with God's word. If you have questions, ask me. As you present yourself to God by actively taking the first step in obedience, your body, your voice, your mouth, your heart, your mind, your emotions will become instruments of righteousness. As you begin to play your heaven's song, So do not fear, my children. For sin will not have dominion over you. You're no longer under the law, but under grace. Let us walk out, no longer in Christian lives of passivity, letting go and letting God, but rather striving to take hold, obeying God actively, watching Him help us to live victorious lives for his glory and our enjoyment. Let's pray. Thank you for this truth, Father, that yes, there is sin in me, but my it's sin is not me. It's rather in my indwelling body, and it wants to take me captive to live in the way that I used to. But you tell me to obey your word, to make you ruler by obeying your rules. And as I do so, as I activate my members to walk in the direction your word calls me to, that you will meet me there. And you will give me strength. And you will play in concert with me as I play your music. And we will make a beautiful song together. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.